Kia ora. Welcome to this episode of the Windows on Dementia podcast. My name is Kate DeGoldie. Communication can be a big challenge for people living with dementia. As the journey of dementia progresses, people can find it more and more difficult to express themselves clearly and to understand what others say. But as we all know, there's a great deal more to communication than just words. As a champion for dementia and as a writer, I know firsthand the importance of communication and the ability to be able to express our thoughts and feelings to the people we care about. Today, I'm talking dementia and communication with Alison Ray, Research Professor of Language and Communication at Cardiff University. We're delighted that Alison has taken the time out of her busy day to join us all the way from the UK. Alison's research into dementia communication focuses on understanding the causes of disrupted communication, not just as a result of the underlying damage to the brain, but also what happens to the norms of social interaction and how these are affected by the cognitive disruptions caused by dementia. Kia ora, Alison. Welcome to the podcast. Let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us more about how living with dementia has an impact on the way we communicate? The first thing I think we need to recognize is that communication is a two-way process. So um, the problems that arise don't just affect people living with a dementia, they also affect the people they're interacting with. Both people have got a problem with their communication and so we have to address both sides of it. Um, so yes, we of course we need to look at how dementia affects a person's ability to express themselves and to understand other people. But we've also got to look at what happens next. What happens when the unimpaired person receives a message or finds that the, the person with dementia hasn't understood their message? How do they respond? And what options does that response give back to the person with dementia in their next go in their communication? Um, so I think communication is vital for our well-being, uh, and here's the reason why. We all live in our own uh, world of our own experience. Um, everything we do, we like, everywhere we go, the things we know, the things we see and hear, these are all contribu contributing to our own um, experience our, our own little world and what we really want to do moment by moment is keep that world as comfortable as we can so physically comfortable we don't want to be too hot or too cold we don't want to be hungry and so on we want to keep it cognitively comfortable which means that there might be some information that we would really like to know if we knew that our life would just feel a little bit better and emotionally, we want to keep comfortable as well. We want to feel loved. We want to not feel anxious uh, and so on. And this world constantly changes just by time passing. Things keep happening. Um, so um, at 10 o'clock in the morning, maybe I don't feel very hungry, but come lunchtime, I feel hungry. And that happened all on its own, just by virtue of the fact that time passed. And so if we want to keep our world as comfortable as possible, we're constantly making little modifications to it. Um, it's a bit like trying to steer a, uh, down a bumpy road uh, in a car which has got dodgy steering. We're just trying to keep, 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 keep everything going in a, in a straight line. And uh, the way we're gonna do that where possible is 
under our on our own steam. So, uh, for example, if I'm feeling a bit hungry, the chances are I'll just go into the kitchen and make myself a sandwich. If I'm feeling a bit cold, I'll close the window, whatever. But often the things that we want to change in our world, we're not capable of changing ourselves. We need to enlist the help of somebody else. So if I'm in the supermarket and the cereal packet I want is on the top shelf and I can't reach it, I may have to ask somebody else who's taller to reach it for me. If I'm hungry when I'm out, I can't make myself some food, so I may have to persuade somebody else to provide me with some food. If I need some information, I may need to ask somebody else to provide it for me, and so on. And so we spend a lot of our time trying to get other people to help us make our world just that little bit more comfortable. And most of the time we're doing this without really noticing that we're doing it, aren't we? Oh, absolutely, yes. We, we're so accustomed to interacting with our world and to interacting with others that it just seems entirely natural to us. We do it not only with language, we do it with eye contact uh, and, and with little gestures and so on. So um, if we're going to get other people to react in the way that we need them to in order to make our world a little bit more comfortable we're going to need quite sophisticated tools for that and language of course is a very sophisticated tool and we can make lots of choices within language that will optimize the way we get a message across that will help to get the person to respond in exactly the way that we want so the question is how do we know what the best words and the best emotions are on a given occasion, it's not always the same. It depends on the context. And this is what's really, really key to uh, understanding how communication works. So we have to be able to track that context and to be able to track it and take information on board, we need to be able to process information very fast and we need to have a good memory. And you can see where this is going because dementia is going to under undermine the fluency of the language, choosing the right words and so on, and also the ability to process information fast enough and remember everything fast enough to be able to track the context. So this gives us our entry into understanding why dementia starts to undermine communication. As you said, memory is key to a lot of this. Um, memory of our past experiences, um, memory in the short term within the framework that we're communicating at the moment. So how does dementia then interfere with this delicate process? Let's think about the language aspect first. We know that dementia can undermine some aspects of language. One example is word finding. We know that people um, with Alzheimer's and vascular dementia may have difficulty uh, just coming up with the word they want just when they want it. Now, one of the things that can happen there is that they um, are not fluent. So they start a sentence and they can't finish it because they just can't find that word. But what often happens um, is that they will replace the word they want with another word. And now sometimes that's an entire, we all do that from time to time when we can't come up with the, the word we want. Sometimes it'll be a word that isn't quite optimal and that could cause a bit of confusion. Very often it's a, a more vague word. This is really very common using pronouns, things like it and that and he, or things like thingamajig, that thing and so on. Um, so that the, the person can get to the end of the sentence, but the person who's listening to them may not be able to pin down enough 
detail to, to really follow exactly what they mean. And of course, also because of word finding difficulties, they might struggle to decode what the other person has said to them because they, they go to look up those words and they can't quite uh, find their meanings in time. So that's the language aspect. And there are various other aspects of language as well. But the key thing really is because of the memory and the processing issues and how those impact on the context, because it can be difficult for a person to keep up with what's being said. So they lose the thread in their own speech. They might get halfway through saying something and then not be able to carry on. They've lost where they were going. But particularly in understanding, in a conversation, people are talking around them and they just can't take that information in fast enough to, to keep track of updating all of the information on uh, the context. And the result of that is that they might gauge the context wrong. So they're not entirely sure what it's appropriate to say in this situation because they haven't quite kept up with what situation it is. They're not sure what's already been said. So they're not sure when they would or wouldn't be repeating themselves. And so they might say something in good faith, like ask a question thinking, well, it'll be great. My world will be that little bit better if I know what time my doctor's appointment is. And they don't realize that they're repeating themselves because they've already asked that question and had an answer because they don't recall that. Or they might be addressing somebody as if they're someone else because they've misunderstood or not recalled who that person is. Or they might say something that's just inappropriate for the situation because they haven't quite realized what that situation is. Somebody said it and then um, they've, they've not recalled it or not kept up with it. And then so they say something in good faith and then they're surprised or upset because the response they get is not what they expected. The person says, I've told you that already. Or how can you possibly say that? That's so hurtful. And I didn't mean to do that. They, they, they just didn't realize that they had gauged the context inappropriately. And so that leads to all sorts of potential risks for them, which over time they, they might find that in order to get the changes they want to their, get to their world, every time they try to and they say something, they find somebody sort of like fighting back and disagreeing with them or saying it's not appropriate. So they might become a bit aggressive and insistent. And then the effect of that is that the other person thinks that they're just being awkward or, or, or um, un, uh, unfriendly. Or they might become fearful that they, they're going to say the wrong thing and therefore they go quiet. They're not confident that they've got all the information. And then basically over time, they're going to feel that they're losing their ability to modify their world experience in those little ways that just make it a little bit more comfortable. And they end up feeling powerless and compromised, overruled, ignored. And meanwhile, of course, the person they're engaging with is also not being able to modify their world in an appropriate way because they can't get their messages across. So they also feel that things aren't going right. And you can see that this is a recipe for communication to become unsatisfactory and to people to feel that it's frustrating and they're not able to um, have the interaction that they hoped to. So there's a kind of feedback loop, isn't there, that's negative. And, and I guess what you're saying is applicable at all stages of dementia from the very early signs of short-term memory and I'm sure we've all experienced being in the middle of a conversation with a number of people and someone who has the early stages of dementia and they will get lost in the conversation and come out 
with what seems like a non sequitur. Ideally, we're going to accommodate that. But as time goes on, it becomes more and more problematic because communication is two-way, but there's a block for each end of the conversation here. So the big thing is, what are the ways in which we can support each other? And what occurs to me is that so often people with dementia or caregiving or with them in some ways, they actually feel quite frustrated and often angry and um, kind of bewildered by by what's happening with the person with dementia because they don't actually understand the process that's going on in their brain. So what, what can you suggest? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that there's various things to suggest. That, um, a key thing is... The, the, to explain the reason why people get so frustrated and uh, by this situation is because we mustn't forget that they're also trying to modify their world and make it as comfortable as possible. And this person living with a dementia is not their fault, but they're they're preventing that from happening. So you know, all I wanted you to do was just tell me this or do this thing for me, and you're not doing it. And so, however however much they want to be understanding and they recognize that it's the dementia that's causing this there's a very very fundamental thing that's going on for them which is that all they're trying to do is keep their little world in in order it sounds quite selfish but it isn't it's just what we do um and so it's not surprising that they then respond in these very uh, these these very sort of strong emotional ways and it's it takes a lot of skill and self-confidence and self-awareness to be able to overcome or recognize and overcome um, the, these sort of negative feelings. So one of the key things I was going to say about where we can support better communications is what we call language awareness. It's noticing our own response when the communication doesn't work and making it a project. I mean, it's really quite interesting in a way. Think about different options for responding differently and being prepared to experiment. So it's stepping outside. It is a kind of ego suppression, I suppose. It's stepping outside the humph, this isn't working, I feel annoyed, and, and being able to say, wow, okay, so let's see what I can do to make this work better. And a couple of ways into that, the first one, and it's it's so obvious and so simple, and you think, why did I have to do all these years of research to come up with an answer like this? But actually, the core of it is being kind. It's remembering to to act with kindness because we do forget that we, we 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 you know we get frustrated, we get annoyed, and we just need to notice that. And so, hang on, what's the kind thing to do here? Let's just remember and being kind to ourselves as well because there's no point suppressing your own needs and your your own emotions you've got to say okay i understand how does this now what's a practical way forward to make this work better um and then i think the key thing is to re to really expect that when anybody says anything to you it doesn't matter whether they're living with a dementia or not anybody says anything to you it has a purpose they're saying it for a reason and you often need to read between the lines because it may not be the thing that they say, the actual words, that tell you what the real purpose is. Uh, I mean, people who've got teenagers know this. You know, the teenager says, 
you know, I, I, I hate you and leave me alone. And that's not really what they mean. What they need is a bit of comforting or a bit of encouragement or something. And so, you know, we, we, we do know this through our lives that sometimes you need to read between the lines and you need to try and figure out what, what they really need to change in their world that would make their world feel better. And how can I help them to achieve that purpose? And we won't always get it right. This goes back to the kindness. Be kind to yourself. You won't always get it right. Do your best and then just try and move on and don't carry a kind of burden of failure. This is a really, really hard thing to do. Really hard. And it's hard for everybody. And we just need to kind of keep a calmness and and friendliness towards ourselves and to everybody else to just try and make it work as best we can. This is a really tough situation. So one thing that occurs to me is that in order in order to be kind, you actually have to be a little bit imaginative. You have to think about what the effect, what your how your responses might be affecting the other person. So, I mean, something that I used to notice a lot in our extended family when both my parents had dementia and had, you know, really no memory um, or were midway along the way, my aunts would argue with my mother when she said something. No, 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 that's not right, they'd say. Now, instinctively, that felt to me, even though it was done for the best reasons, they were still recognising her as someone who had cognition. In fact, it, it confused my mother and she felt belittled by them saying it was wrong. So it seemed obvious to me that the best way to help her in that moment was to not argue but to find another way around it. So, and that actually requires a little bit of imaginative thinking. Would you say that's right? Yeah, I, I agree. And I think people have a lot of, sort of scruples about this kind of thing. When it's somebody who you've known for maybe your whole life, it can feel really wrong to not tell them how things are. So, you know, go along with them if they think something isn't the case, even lie to them. It can it, it can feel really bad. You can feel really guilty about it. Like sort of dishonouring their integrity in some way. Exactly. Yeah, it feels like you're just treating them, you know, not with respect by not telling them something. And and this is a really hard thing that you, where we need to look inside ourselves and, and say, okay, you know, so I think sometimes you've just got to live with the fact that it, you might feel a bit guilty, but you've got to look at what is going to feel best for them, what's going to leave them feeling okay. And I mean, a classic example is when somebody is asking for somebody who's died and saying, you know, where's this person? And you, you know that if you tell them they've died, they'll get upset. People who've been dealing with these situations for a while sort of say, well, yeah, actually, you come to a point when you decide that you're just going to swallow your scruples and you, you're you not necessarily going to lie, lie, but you're certainly not going to force your reality on them just to make you feel better. Mm. My way of thinking, quite a glorious part of um, late stage dementia when um, the person with dementia has actually found a way of explaining their own altered reality to themselves and I know that can be very disturbing to their family and friends sometimes. But again, it's always seemed to me that the, the kindest thing to do in that situation is enter into their altered reality in some way, some little way, in order to be with them in it and affirm them in some way. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I, again, I think that I suppose what you've got to do is say, what are the alternatives for this person? 
you know, if, if you're in a situation where somebody has misunderstood a situation, has misunderstood where they are or who they are, but by telling them gently, then they will be able to rejoin a shared reality with you. you know, give it a go, see what happens. But if they're unable to do that, if, if the current reality just doesn't make any sense to them, but they found another way to make sense of it, then provided that is a situation in which they feel calm uh, and you know reasonably happy, go with it. Of course, that isn't always the case. Sometimes people could uh, confabulate themselves into situations that are very frightening, particularly if they're reaching back into parts of their childhood where they had un, uh, you know unhappy situations. And there, that would be much more difficult. I don't think there are any easy answers. I get a little bit worried when you, you know you look at some websites and they'll say you know the three the three tip top tips do this and everything will be all right and it won't because it's just too complicated every situation is different and the the key things that you know the best kind of tips are learn to notice learn to experiment learn to to try things out and don't give yourself a hard time if it doesn't work remember to be kind because what those are doing are they are furnishing you with the tools that you need to deal with your situation on that occasion. And there's no guidance in the world that can tell you in advance what you need to do in that situation. You've got to figure out for yourself at the time and you won't always get it right, but you can have a go. Uh, at, and you've got to just have the call. I think the key thing is that a lot of family members and professional carers lack the confidence to just you know, say, oh, right, that might be what's going on. Let's try this. Uh, and they just feel kind of, oh, I might do the wrong thing. Well, yeah, you might, but, you know, give it a go. What you're saying makes so much sense, but it requires patience. And that, that that's it, patience and time. And that's an extraordinary hard thing at different times, depending on what else is going on in your life, isn't it? It's It's really hard. And this is where it comes down to, the quality of the social environment in which uh, people with dementia are being cared for. Because if you're, if if you live in a society where it's considered okay to send in a professional carer for quarter of an hour to make the person's breakfast and get them dressed, then it's not surprising that they're not going to be able to sit down and interact with them. And you know, I I developed this notion in my research called social reserve um we 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 know in dementia research that there's a thing called brain reserve which is how well your brain is set up to resist developing dementia and people vary on and and how resistant they are to dementia <clears throat> and there's also something called cognitive reserve which is given how resistant your brain is or isn't how well are you using your brain so that it is quite good at dodging some of the problems that dementia uh, develops uh, and so quite a lot's known about that. But I developed this idea of social reserve, which is how good is society at enabling people living with a dementia to live well? And how well is it supporting family carers and professional carers to do the best job that they want to do? I think you're not going to find any family carer or professional carer who you know, who is happy with the fact that they're so busy, so many things to do, fighting so many systems, trying to do so many things at once and i mean for example i think there was one piece of research a, a while back in um in care homes that showed if you can just add one more member of staff on duty residential care home 
massively changes the quality of the communication because there's one there's just that little bit more leeway to sit down and have a little interaction with somebody and check how somebody is and take a little bit more time when they're trying to say something to you rather than you've got to rush off because you've got to do the medication you've got to do the food you've got to do the tea whatever it is and these kinds of things it's really where we we all have a social responsibility uh, to lobby for government to put the funding in to make sure that we have adequate social support um, so that people can live well and Alison, the other thing that happens a lot um, is that family members, even when they're, say, when they're visiting their loved ones in care, feel quite compromised because they're not getting a lot back. They, want, they feel dutiful. They love their parent, or whoever it is. And it seems to me that this is not often talked about. It's, it can be very, very boring. And um, the only way I could ever ever sort of move through that with my parents was by having something else to do while I was with them. So I took up knitting again <laughs> with a vengeance. And it freed me to just be with them in a sense and observe and participate. That's not for everyone. But that's a trick that I kind of came up with. And the other thing was to, and you really alluded to this, is to listen hard and to actually almost see it as a kind of learning experiment, noticing what's happening and and what it tells you, how it might connect to them in the past. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And if you think about it, I mean, going and visiting somebody and sitting in front of, in front of them and just kind of talking at them, I mean, it, it might be something you do with your mate in a, in a coffee shop or something, but it is a it's a quite artificial kind of thing. If, if, if you were sharing a home, you would be just kind of around each other and doing different things and, you know, chatting while you're doing the ironing or while you're making a meal. And all of that is taken away um, in, a, in a residential facility. And I think knitting is the, it's a perfect one. I have a colleague, Nicole Miller, um, who does research in, uh, on communication in residential care homes in precisely that way. She goes in and she takes her knitting and then she's just observing. She can interact when somebody wants to interact, but nobody's forcing anybody to interact. And I think this is the thing is, you know, we can, you bombard somebody with questions and you know, that's really, it's hard work for a person with dementia. It can be hard work for a person without dementia as well. So yeah, I think taking knitting, doing a jigsaw together maybe if they're able to do that or 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 just sitting and you know looking in a magazine if it's just turning the pages or watching the television together just being with a person because one of the things that a person living with a dementia might most want changed in their world is a sense of companionship of somebody who's there for them and is there with them but isn't making massive demands on them. And I think one of the things that can often happen is we end up making massive demands on people with dementia because we're wanting something back for ourselves. The, the other thing, um, I, I was quite startled how often I was asked, and my sisters were certainly asked, by uh, extended family and friends, does your mother still know you? Does your father still know you? And if you were to say, as was the case with my father, no, he doesn't exactly know who we are, he knows with someone important to them. There would be a concomitant devaluing of him as a consequence of that. Like, what was the point in you seeing him if he didn't know you? That was like the end. 
the fact that he didn't recognize you. It seemed to be dependent, their validity seemed to be dependent on them recognizing you. And I really struggle with that. Um, and I'm, I've never been quite sure how to answer people without being punitive in my answer. Do you have any thoughts on that? There's a great story I've read uh, I've read on the internet, so I don't know where it's come from originally, about um, a man who goes to visit his, his wife with dementia, and he goes every day, and somebody says to him, uh, why do you visit her every day when she doesn't know who you are? And he says, because I still know who she is. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a terribly hard thing. Um, but it's about all the different things that we need in our world. Yes, we want recognition by somebody who we've known for many years, but we also want to feel that we're doing right by them. We want to feel that um, if they ever, if, if, that they know somebody cares. I mean, it doesn't matter if they don't know who it is. Somebody took the trouble to come and see how they were. And that's, that's really important. Now, Alison, you have a book out today, and its title is Why Dementia Makes Communication Difficult, A Guide to Better Outcomes. I like that word guide. Um, who who do you feel the book is for, and why did you write it? Yeah, so um, I've done this huge amount of research over about uh, 10, 12 years to understand what it is that's going on in dementia communication. And um, last year, uh, so in 2020, I published this sort of like big academic book about it. Um, and as I was writing that, I was very well aware that, you know, I'm writing to try to pin down the answers, pin down some answers to these big academic questions. And a lot of people, I, when I was just sort of out and about, would say, oh, I want to really read your book. And I was thinking, it's so academic. I don't think it's really the right book for just people who just want to understand more about what to do. So I thought I need to write a different kind of book which takes the core ideas out and presents them in a way which doesn't have hundreds of references in it and doesn't you know, explain all the theory behind it. That's not necessary to get to, to these key ideas. Uh, and so um, I wrote it for like ordinary people, normal people who aren't academics, um, who just who just want to understand a, a bit about more. It's aimed at um, three different types of reader. And um, the first one really is people living with a dementia themselves, because it struck me that there's almost nothing out there that's addressed to them. We, we can diagnose dementia earlier and earlier. There are many, many people who've had a dementia diagnosis who are entirely capable of reading up for themselves and trying to figure out you know ways that they can help themselves i mean if if you came away from the doctors with a cancer diagnosis or a heart disease diagnosis or a diabetes diagnosis you'd come away with a wadge of papers about how to you know how to live better with this disease how, how you know what you can do for yourself to improve your quality of life and and, and your prospects when it comes to dementia i don't think that you get that really maybe your 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 family member gets some information or something, but it's like the person with dementia is pushed aside. They're there, we'll sort it all out for you. And I think that's a big mistake. I think people living with a dementia, you know, in the early stages of the disease, entirely capable of figuring things out for themselves and making choices. So it's aimed at them. It's aimed at family members and professional carers, and it's also aimed at what I call bystanders. And these are people like hairdressers and people who deliver the post and shopkeepers and neighbours, the people who occasionally encounter a person living with dementia who don't have a lot of expertise, don't have a lot of experience, but on the other hand, can come in with a fresh eye 
there isn't a big agenda for them about if I say that, what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, or, 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 or can I keep this up all day? And, and so they can bring a freshness to it. They can also observe how a family member is interacting with the person and how that dynamic is working. So they can learn things from that and see what things they could try that might help or not. And so at the end of the chapter of the book, there are what I call action points and there are separate action points for each of these types of reader which have different ways of coming at what's in the chapter to help them to think about ways that they might um, develop their skills in helping solve these challenges around uh, communication, which are challenges for all of us. Well, Alison, all I can say is it's been immensely clarifying to hear um, your analysis of the communication system and you know one has instincts about what might be going on with dementia but to to hear the 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 hard facts about it and especially um what you said about the context that will be being um disrupted for the person what they're expecting is not going on and then how that strange negative feedback loop occurs when both parties are feeling distressed but to understand how that's working is to empower those of us who are with people with dementia. So it's immensely valuable. And, um, you know, your book will be, um, I, w- I wish one had been around when um, my parents were around. That would have been fantastic, especially what you say about bystanders. I found that really fascinating and how, you know, they're not just ephemeral people in our lives. They can actually feed into the lives of people with dementia. So you, just to repeat for people, the, your book is called Why Dementia Makes Communication Difficult, A Guide to Better Outcomes. It's out in the UK now, but people in New Zealand can go to their local independent bookshop and they'll order it for you. And it's published by Jessica Kingsley, which is an imprint of Hachette. So um, we'll be stampeding to our shops to order that soon. Can I say thank you so much for taking the time with us today? Um, And I'll say to the rest of the people out there listening to this, you can find support and information on a range of topics, including communication, on the Alzheimer's New Zealand website, alzheimers.org.nz. Alison, it's been a real pleasure to talk and to understand um, as a consequence what you said. And um, three cheers for global communications. It's, It's been so lovely to talk to you.